When I talked to David this week, uh, early in the week, he uh, asked me to send him the scripture passage that we'll be looking at tonight, and I gave him one that began actually a little bit after than what I'd like to read with you, uh, and that ends a little bit after what we'll actually be reading. So um, I invite you to open in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. And we'll be looking at chapter 4, verses, 15, uh, verses 7 through 15, but I'd like to read the first six verses just to uh, put us a little bit in, in context. Hear now the reading of God's Word. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God... We do not lose heart. But we, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of, unbel of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. We've heard from God's inspired word. Let's go before the one who has given it to us. I invite you to pray. Father, we do rejoice in the blessings that you give us day after day. We rejoice in family. We rejoice in a country 
where we can express our freedom. We rejoice in friends, in a house over our heads, in food, over, in food on the table. And we look to you as the one who has given us all that. But Father, more than anything else, we rejoice because you have made us into your people. You have given us Jesus Christ, who has become our Lord and our Savior. You've given us your Spirit, who takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ and makes that into a work of sanctification in our lives. Father, as we look to that sanctification and and as we look to your word that tells us about it, we recognize that we are not yet where you would have us to be. And so, Father, as we come before you tonight and as we look into your word, we pray that you would give us a greater measure of that spirit so that the words that we have heard would be understandable to our minds that they would touch our hearts and that by the power of that same spirit they would become more and more a reality in our lives. We pray this so that your name would be glorified in and through us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin by asking a couple questions. In your opinion, what would the ideal pastor look like? Now, some of you may be saying he's not very tall, he has a beard and an accent from Pennsylvania. But what kind of personality? What about the ideal church? How would it be organized? What kind of programs would you find in the ideal church? What about the Christian life? What would the ideal Christian life look like? Well, the natural answer to some of those questions for a lot of people might be the ideal pastor is someone who speaks in a way that's captivating, that's exciting. The ideal church is one that's perfectly organized where new people are coming in each week, where programs are in place for every member of the church. And the ideal Christian life is a life that's free from troubles, a life simply of victorious Christian living over sin and over all the things that Satan could stir up against us. But here's the thing. When we start asking questions like that, we realize pretty quickly how much importance we tend to place on appearances, on things that are exterior and that touch the periphery rather than the heart. In a sense, it's understandable. We live in a culture and in a world that places high priority on appearances. We see that, don't we, in general elections and perhaps more specifically in the, elec- in the elections that we've been going through over the last several months. 
a lot of people are looking for leaders who come off as strong, who speak well, and who embody power. And so we find ourselves in a paradoxical situation where we have people who are making promises that they know full well that they cannot keep, and people who will want to vote for those people knowing full well that they won't keep the promises, but simply because the promises that are made and the way in which they're made are forceful. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not here this evening to talk about politics. And I'm sure several of you are already relieved to hear that. And if it sounds overly negative, let me just remind you that, as Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the sun. Think of the Old Testament already, where Israel was looking for a king who would have the appearances of a king, and God gave them Saul, who was contrasted with David, who was a man not of appearances, but a man according to God's heart. Now, if I say all that, it's because the Apostle Paul was confronted with a similar situation in the church in Corinth. With Christians who were so focused on appearances that they were neglecting what is essential in Paul's ministry. And again, it's something that we see all around us today. And so as Paul exposes his motivations and his ministry he also shows us some very important things about how we should be looking today at our Christian leaders, at our church situations, and at our lives as Christians. Let's take a look. And I'd like to begin by developing fairly in-depth the context in which Paul writes these words. As we turn to 2 Corinthians, Paul is faced with at least a double uh, problem. First of all, he's faced with a problem of PR, public relations. Paul apparently was not an especially good speaker. In fact, later on in this book, he'll say that he has the reputation of being unimpressive in person and that his speaking amounts to nothing, literally that it is contemptible. Paul has a PR problem. But there was an even more difficult issue, and that is that there were Jewish Christians going through the churches that he had established, saying that, among other things, that Paul was not being upfront with them. Paul was preaching in a way to put himself forward so that as time went by, he could take advantage of his power over the churches to use it for his own good. Now, that's a serious accusation. And so, as we look at 2 Corinthians, we realize that all throughout this letter, Paul insists on the importance of the message that he's given and the transparency of his motives. The importance of the message that he's been given and the transparency of his motives. Paul's message is unadulterated, and he proclaims it with complete openness. In a sense, we could say that Paul's basic message in 2 Corinthians is what you see really is what you get. One of the the central passages 
of this letter. It's, it's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. is in chapter 3 where Paul contrasts his ministry with that of Moses. Remember how in the book of Exodus, Moses goes into the tent of meeting to speak with God. And we read in Exodus that because of that meeting with God, when Moses left the tent, his face was shining from meeting with the glorious God of the universe. And his face shone with that glory for a time. Now, Paul reminds the Corinthians that Moses veils his face. Why does he do that? To keep the Israelites from focusing their eyes on what is only fading away. But, says Paul, it's not like that with our ministry. We are completely open, we are completely transparent. Because that is the very nature of the message that God has given us. We do not act with a veil. We do not cover up what we're doing. And then Paul gives an incredible turn to that passage. And he goes on to say that if we are Christians, we are all contemplating God's glory as it is revealed today in the face of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but as we contemplate Jesus Christ through prayer, through the ordinances as we read earlier, the Holy Spirit takes that contemplation and uses, us, uses it to transform us from the inside out so that we all, as Paul says in in 3.18, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Literally, from glory to glory. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That is an incredible message. And think about what that means for us for a moment. Because the gospel is what it is. That is to say, a transforming reality that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The gospel message is a message of power. We so easily forget that there is power in the Christian life. And what is striking is to see how often Paul speaks in those terms. Paul is constantly using terms like power or to empower, strength or to strengthen. Just a couple of examples. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 4.20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power. In Ephesians 1.19, Paul prays that his readers would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Then again in Ephesians 3.16, he prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. And in the passage we read a few minutes ago, he says in verse 7, He talks about the the surpassing power, literally the excess of power 
that belongs to God and that is the treasure that has been given to us. Christianity is synonymous with power because the God of the gospel is the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead after three days in the tomb. And friends, I have to confess that I don't realize that nearly as much as I should. And that I don't always seek to see that in my life nearly as much as I should. But here's the thing. All that is true, but, and there is a but, and that brings us to what is really essential in the verses that we read a few minutes ago. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The gospel is given to us as a treasure, and because that gospel is empowered by God's Spirit, it transforms us from the inside. But that doesn't mean that it will necessarily be given to those to, to, those to whom, from a worldly point of view, people will be most attracted. And the same goes for our churches. The church in which God's power is at work isn't always the church in which you would most expect to see it. And the, the situations in which the power of the gospel is at work in our lives isn't necessarily that situation or those situations where things are going smoothly and running flawlessly. As we look to the visible circumstances in our lives and in our churches, very often we don't see much outward glory attached to them. Now that might disappoint us. But here's the thing. God wants it that way. And he wants it that way so that we do not become so focused on appearances that we become distracted from what is genuinely important. God is pleased to place that excess of power in the most ordinary and even weak vessels so that there will be no confusion possible between the content and the container so that we will not mistake the recipient for what that recipient is carrying in it. God doesn't want us to become so attached to the outside wrappings, the church leader, the specific church, the particular life situation that we lose sight of the content, and that is the gospel in our living relationship with God through Jesus Christ. If you take a Stradivarius, the violin of all violins, and you give it to a masterful violinist, you could easily be tempted to say, well, of course it sounds good, it's a Stradivarius. But the amazing thing is that same master violinist 
can take a bottom-of-the-line violin and still have it sound incredible. And that's when you realize that it isn't so much the instrument. It's the one who's playing it. And when we see God's glory in unlikely people such as you and me, in unlikely church situations, and sometimes in the most difficult situations that we can find ourselves in, then we know that it is not the instrument that's important. It's the one who's playing it. Now, what does that mean? I'd like you to notice fairly quickly three details in connection with these verses. The first thing is that as Christians, we will encounter opposition and difficulties. And as I say that, I address myself more to the younger people in the church than to the older people. If you're getting to my age or halfway there, then you know that the Christian life often has its share of difficulties. But sometimes when we're young, we don't think of it. Now, Paul talks about the fact that we carry around in our bodies the death of Christ. And we might take that to mean that as believers, things won't always be easy and that at certain points in our lives, we may be faced with hardships. But Paul isn't talking about difficulties in a general sort of way. He's talking about the opposition that we can face as Christians because of the gospel message. Look at verses 8 and 9. Paul says that he is afflicted. Literally, that he is constricted or pressed hard. Have you ever been in a situation where you feel like you're hemmed in from all sides and that you can see no exit to the problem that you're in? That's the kind of thing that Paul is describing. And he's most likely referring to a situation that he's just recently lived uh, through and that he talks about at the beginning of 2 Corinthians. In chapter 1, he talks about how in Asia Minor, he had been utterly burdened, so utterly burdened beyond his strength that he despaired even of life. He was sure that he had received the sentence of death because of his faithful proclamation of the gospel. He goes on to say that he is perplexed at a loss, that he's persecuted, that he's struck down, literally thrown down on the ground. That's what Paul is talking about when he talks about carrying the death of Jesus around in his body. Now, there are times when we have to deal with discouragement or feelings of inadequacy, and thankfully, God helps us overcome that as well. But Paul is talking specifically about opposition for the sake of the gospel. And that means that when we are put down by family members who don't understand us, by friends or acquaintances who belittle us, by teachers in school who make fun of our convictions, or sometimes even getting passed over for a raise or a promotion because we are known to be that Christian, then we are, in a small sense, carrying around the death of Jesus in our bodies. Now, we, we don't think about the, all that very much. We don't think about that uh, all very much uh, because, 
Traditionally in the United States, uh, our country has been characterized at the very least by a certain respect for Christian values, even though that is changing. But friends, if you live outside of the United States, and if you live in part of the world where millions of Christians are living, then you know that that is something that is very often a part of Christians' daily life in the Muslim world, in Africa in particular. But here's the thing. In the eyes of the world, Christian life doesn't necessarily have an attractive appearance. And paradoxically, that is how we show the world who we belong to. Because we belong to him who loved us so much that he was willing to endure opposition, mockery, and go as far as the cross so that we could live and belong to him. What does Isaiah say? He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. When we go through opposition for Christ's sake, we are only showing the character of him who loved us enough to die for us. Second, though, notice that this death of Jesus that Paul accepts and that we're called to accept is given for a reason. It's so that Christ's life can also be made manifest in us. Verses 11 and 12, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And he says the same thing in verse 10. Now, what does that mean? Well, there are a couple things. First of all, because Paul doesn't cave in under the circumstances, but remains firm, those who are watching can see Christ's power upholding him and giving him strength to continue. You know, there, there's nothing particularly glorious about being strong when it's easy. I can present myself as an athlete as long as I don't have to do athletics. But friends, when we remain hopeful, joyful, and perseverant in faith, even though, that we, even though we are being attacked because of that same faith, that is the sign that Christ's life is being worked out in us. But Paul also says, death is at work in us, but life in you. And what he means by that is that because by God's grace, Paul is willing to go into situations where there is opposition, where there is persecution, God's grace is touching more and more people. It would be easy for us, friends, to spend our days lying on a couch, watching television, or to spend our free time doing this. And you know, that could be perhaps 
one of the worst plagues in today's society, not because there's anything wrong with electronics, don't get me wrong, but because it makes us into passive observers. As Christians, we are called to go and live the life of Christ even though there will be opposition and persecution so that people will see that life in us and through us. Have you ever wondered why the gospel has had so much impact in places like Africa, South America, or India, or China? It's almost always connected to a few people who are willing to go into life-threatening situations and sometimes die in the process in order simply to proclaim the gospel. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that God is, that God is specifically calling us to that. It could be. But it does mean that in some sense, God will use us for the sake of the gospel as we are willing to show by our entire lives the life and death of Jesus in what we say and in what we do. Not that we go out and look for suffering. And we know that as a general rule, suffering comes looking for us. But we are called to make it a point of our lives as Christians to seek to live out the reality of Christ's presence as it affects the way we live in those situations in which he places us. In other words, suffering, my friends, is missions-oriented. Just as the rest of our lives, if we are Christians, is missions-oriented. Now, if you've been following up to this point, you may be saying, wow, that may be the kind of lifestyle that Paul calls us to, but it doesn't sound very encouraging. And we probably know a certain number of people uh, that have been in the church for a long time and that are models of faithfulness and sticking it out no matter what the cost, but when we look at the way they live, we don't want to be like that because we never sense the joy. And I have to admit that there are times when uh, I myself uh, live Christianity as something more to be endured than to be joyful over. And so as we run into difficulties, because we're seeking to live as Christians, what do we need to keep moving forward? What is it that we need to remain joyful in the face of difficult situations because of the gospel? Well, surprisingly, it's nothing other than what we've been looking at up to now. And that's the third thing that I'd like you to notice in these verses. And that is that Paul keeps his eyes focused not on the present difficulties, but on our union with Jesus Christ. And on the fact that because we are united to Christ in faith, we will remain united with him until his return. Verses 13 and 14. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. 
we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Paul speaks because his eyes are riveted on the promise that if we belong to Jesus Christ, God will give us the same resurrection that he has given to Christ because Christ is the first fruits of our resurrection. Friends, we live in, in a culture that is obsessed with living now and living it to the full. And that is reinforced daily in dozens of ways. How many times have we heard the one who dies with the most toys wins? How many of us have seen the bumper sticker? How many of us perhaps even have it on our cars? I'm spending my children's inheritance. Sorry to offend anyone if you have it. But you see, everything in the culture we live in is focused on what we can do, own, buy, and experience right now. And as soon as things get difficult, discouragement sets in and we lose heart because all of a sudden we realize that right now isn't always very good. Now, that's not what we see here because Paul's eyes are not focused on the circumstances. His eyes are focused on Christ who is revealing his life through him, who is transforming him into his image, and who promises the fullness of his resurrection when he returns. Think about that. As believers, we are united to Jesus Christ. His righteousness, his perfect obedience is placed on our account. We belong to him, and because of that, God looks at us with the same love and the same pleasure that he looks upon his eternal son. And not only that, but the spirit of Jesus Christ has been given to us. He is at work in our lives and we are being transformed even now from glory to glory into his image. And the promise of the Father that is confirmed and proven by Christ's resurrection from the dead is that as he is now, so shall we be at his return. As Paul says in Philippians 3, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. You know, I think sometimes we become discouraged as Christians simply because we forget how amazingly extraordinary the gospel really is. It's not just believing in God. It's being united to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who manifests in us his resurrection power, his, resurre his resurrection life in us. And friends, that's what allows us not only to bear with the fact that 
the death of Jesus manifests itself in us. But even to rejoice when that happens, knowing that if the death of Jesus is manifesting itself in us, then by the same token, his life must also be manifesting itself to us, to those around us. And that's an incredible privilege. Brothers and sisters, as we seek to live and speak in such a way that Jesus Christ becomes visible in our lives and circumstances, may God give us the grace to be simply jars of clay. May he give us the grace to live in such a way that those around us would truly be able to see, not us, but the extraordinary power of God that is in us, transforming us and giving us an eternal hope for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess that very often we are so far from living out what you call us to, especially what your word calls us to this evening. Father, we confess that in specific concrete situations where we would have the opportunity and the privilege to carry Jesus' death in our bodies so that his life may be manifested through us, we shirk from that and we prefer to remain comfortable. Father, forgive us. Father, we confess that in the way we look at our Christian leaders, in the way we look at our churches, in the way we look at our, our own lives, so often we're tempted to put the focus on the container and not the content. So often we're content to focus on the recipient and neglect that treasure that is in it. But Father, as we come before you and read your word, we plead with you that the spirit of Jesus Christ who is transforming us from glory to glory would pursue his work and that throughout this week and in the coming weeks and months as you place us in situations where we have the opportunity to manifest who it is that we belong to, we would be able to do it. And that as we carry around the death of Jesus, those around us would truly see the life of Jesus in us. Father, we don't pray this for ourselves. We pray it so that your grace would touch the lives of more and more people to your glory alone. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.